Today on the Matt Wall Show, the marketing genius behind Bud Light's new ultra-woke marketing campaign has come out to explain her strategy. She says that she wants the brand to evolve and ditch its quote-unquote frat boy image, which only shows yet again that leftists don't understand the institutions that they run. Also, Kamala Harris comes to Nashville not to visit the families of the victims of the trans terrorist shooter. Instead, she came for a photo op with the so-called Tennessee Three, quote-unquote. And a jury in Texas votes to convict a man who shot a BLM protester in self-defense, but the governor of Texas has already said that he plans to pardon him, thankfully. Plus, the new mayor of Chicago makes the case against failing grades and homework in school. He's not as wrong as you might think. We'll talk about all that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. People don't like to talk about death, don't like to think about it. Who does? But that's probably why almost two-thirds of Americans don't have a will. But people, people die unexpectedly all the time, and it would be foolish to not be prepared for that, especially when resources like Epic Will are available to do the work for you. If you die without a will, the state gives everything in your name to your next living relative. If you're not married, that excludes your significant other. Um, is that what you want? You know, What about your, your end-of-life medical decisions? Is that something you want to burden your family with? Who do you trust to handle your financial obligations? These are some of the hardest questions we face in life. And Epic Will is here to help you through every step of this process. With Epic Will, you can get it uh, done in as little as five minutes for just 119 bucks. All you need to do is fill out their step-by-step form, and they'll help you create your last will and testament, your living will, and healthcare power of attorney. Don't put it off any longer. Don't procrastinate any more than you already have. Go to epicwill.com Walsh to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. That's epicwill.com Walsh. As a company, Bud Light has essentially gone into hiding ever since their partnership with womanhood uh, cosplayer Dylan Mulvaney was first announced. They put out a a brief statement meekly defending their decision. But other than that, they've basically been silent. Uh, Bud Light's Twitter account hasn't tweeted anything since the controversy began as the beer brand faces increasing backlash and calls for boycotts. In summary, the rollout for this marketing campaign has been, uh, you might say, less than seamless. And now we know who we can thank for this brilliant idea, or who Bud Light can thank anyway. Although the company has, has said very little to defend their Mulvaney endorsement deal since the deal was made public, we only need to go back a few days before the announcement to get a more in-depth defense and explanation of it. A couple of weeks ago, the vice president of Bud Light, a woman named Alyssa Heinerscheid, appeared on an on a obscure YouTube podcast called Make Yourself at Home. And there she went into great depth about her experience being Bud Light's first female VP, something she's very proud of. And about midway through the conversation, she begins to explain the marketing shift that she is engineering in the company. And this is an effort to be more inclusive and more, quote unquote, representative. Here's the piece of that discussion that has since gone viral. Listen. I'm a businesswoman. Mm -hmm. I had a really clear job to do when I took over Bud Light. And it was, this brand is in decline. It's been in decline for a really long time. And if we do not attract young drinkers to come and drink this brand, there will be no future for Bud Light. So I had this super clear mandate. It's like Mm -hmm. we need to evolve and elevate this incredibly iconic brand. And my what I brought to that was a belief in, okay, what is what do, what does evolve and elevate mean? It means inclusivity. It means shifting the tone. It means having a campaign that's truly inclusive and feels lighter and brighter and different and appeals to women and to men. Mm -hmm. And representation is at sort of the heart of evolution. You've got to see people who reflect you in the work. And we had this hangover. I mean, Bud Light had been kind of a brand of 
bratty, kind of out of touch humor. And it was really important <laughs> that we had another approach. So we see, we see right away from the outset that this woman has, of course, completely misdiagnosed the problem. Yes, Bud Light's sales and market share have been declining over the years, but she's somehow determined that the waning interest in the brand is due to its frat boy image. You know, customers have stopped drinking Bud Light, Alyssa decided, because they're concerned about its toxic masculinity and its insufficient focus on diversity and equity. So she imagines a scenario where the once typical Bud Light drinker you know, is at the liquor store scanning the options at the store of all the different beers, uh, almost reaches for the Bud Light 30-pack, but then pulls back and says to himself, never mind, I'm only buying beer from companies that have displayed an outward commitment to inclusivity and representation. And then she imagines the consumer going up to the cashier and asking where they keep their trans-affirming beverage options. But, you know, I can't say for sure that that scenario has never played out anywhere on earth, but... This is not exactly how it typically works in the real world. The truth is that Bud Light is declining because the product is terrible, first of all, and people have other options. You know, it tastes like carbonated tap water flavored with notes of old hay shoveled off the floor of somebody's barn, and that's why it's not selling as well anymore. You know, before the explosion of the, the craft beer market, people drank Anheuser-Busch products because they were forced, basically they were forced to. They were forced to choose between um, that brand of piss water or some other brand of piss water. Most Beer drinkers didn't even know back in those days, back in the old dark ages, what beer was supposed to actually taste like. They didn't know until the proliferation of craft beer and IPAs. And now consumers can pay 3 or $4 more for real beer. The effect on Bud Light sales, it's similar to the effect on uh, what the effect on Outback Steakhouse would be if a restaurant that actually knows how to cook a steak moved in right next door and only charged a couple of dollars extra. Just a very bad situation. Meanwhile, compounding Bud Light's problems is that the fact that sales of beer in general, all types, have dipped in recent years, as many younger people unfortunately choose to smoke weed instead. So all told, Bud Light is facing many challenges and many challengers, and uh, increasingly it's losing that contest. That's the real problem. But it's not the problem that Alyssa Heinerscheid wants to solve. For her, the, the only problem that she'll ever recognize when it comes to Bud Light or anything else is insufficient wokeness. And before we analyze that any further, I want to continue watching one more minute of this interview. The clip we just watched is the bit that went viral. But if you go to the YouTube channel and you, you look at the actual um, interview, the, it continues on, this part of the conversation continues on for another minute. And you hear something that I think is, is kind of important. Uh, listen to this. Long story short, Super Bowl spot, fast forward, I cast an incredible female choreographer who just brought incredibly positive, amazing energy to the spot. We cast Miles Teller and his wife, Kelly Teller, but it was really crucial to me that if you see that spot, Kelly is, Kelly is the heartbeat of that spot. You're seeing this whole experience through Kelly. She's the beating heart. She, I would sort of argue, is sort of what propels you through that experience, and, and that was intentional. Um, and then we had another really fun spot. First spot out of the gate was the first time ever we'd had a female protagonist in this really cool, she was sort of cool as hell bobbing and weaving through a bar. But anyway, listen, I'm not going to pretend that there isn't so much more work to do from a business results perspective. And of course, from a representation perspective, but I feel like you, you have to put your money where your mouth is when you're trying to evolve a brand and elevate it and bring in new consumers. So that's been incredibly important to me. 
So there she's explaining the thought process behind Bud Light's most recent Super Bowl ad campaign, uh, which did not feature Dylan Mulvaney. That commercial, the one she's referring to, is uh, the one where the actor Miles Teller uh, comes in the room and, and dances with his wife to, uh, while she's listening to hold music. That's what the commercial is. Here's, here's like 10 seconds of it. Watch. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is that if anyone had watched that ad when it first aired and then complained that it was woke, you know, they would have been mocked for it. They would have been treated as a paranoid conspiracy theorist if they had claimed that the Bud Light Super Bowl ad, uh, that that one where they're dancing to hold music, had a liberal bias, if anyone had said that. Uh, After all, just a commercial with two people dancing in their living rooms. What's woke about that? And yet she proudly admits that she chose that ad because it helps further her agenda to feminize the company and bring it into alignment with her left-wing values. It was just done in that case in a relatively subtle way. And that's always more clever when they make it a little bit, a little bit more subtle. And that's going to be more, you know, then, then you have the, the subtle messaging, which gets into people's minds without them even realizing. But also, they put themselves in a position where if anyone who's slightly perceptive notices what they're doing and says it out loud, everyone else could say, what are you talking about? Don't be ridiculous. There's no agenda here. Except there is. They'll tell you. The Dylan Mulvaney sponsorship was, on the other hand, far less subtle. And now they're paying the price for really just a lack of subtlety, except that from Vice President Alyssa's perspective, they're not paying a price at all because she obviously is not really concerned with Bud Light's health as a company or its sales or its long-term prospects. She almost certainly doesn't even like the product, probably hasn't had a single sip of it in her life. You could work at a liquor store for 30 years and never once see someone who looks like Alyssa Heinerscheid or has a name like Alyssa Heinerscheid walk up to the counter with a six-pack of Bud Light. I'm not sure if I've ever seen a woman drink Bud Light ever in my entire life. She doesn't like the product. She doesn't like the company. She doesn't like the customer base. She is yet another liberal woman put into a position of power within an institution, despite not understanding the fundamental point of that institution and hating whatever she does understand about it. You know, we've discussed in depth why these companies go woke, uh, why almost every major company goes woke, has has already gone woke long long ago. Um, And all those points still stand. But here's another reason, just as pertinent. Every institution in our country is being taken over by people who hate the institutions they're in charge of. This is true in the corporate world. This is true in government. Um, This is especially true in the military. This is true in many of our churches. This is true even down to the level of the family, which is the most fundamental societal institution, where many families are led by mothers and fathers who have no interest in marriage or in parenting. They treat their children like pets or fashion accessories, hence the proliferation of quote-unquote trans kids. So across the spectrum, you find institutions that aren't really uh, collapsing from any pressure from without so much as imploding. It's a controlled demolition an intentional act of sabotage from within. Bud Light is just one example, certainly not the most significant or important. It's a symptom of of an underlying thing. And it's no surprise to see this happening as the left seizes hold of the culture. Hatred of societal institutions has always been one of the essential animating principles of the left. And self-hatred too. Now, as I've said before, leftism is a religion of self-loathing. 
teaches boys to hate their masculinity. It teaches girls to hate their femininity. It teaches white people to hate their race. It teaches Americans to hate their country. It teaches Westerners to hate their history and heritage and so on. That's where you find the kind of engineered self-loathing at its deepest levels. Closer to the surface is Bud Light and all other woke corporations managed by executives who hate the companies they run and especially hate the customers that they serve. And hopefully, at least now, that feeling will be mutual. Now let's get to our five headlines. You've seen the negative effects inflation has had on the economy as a whole, such as increasing the cost of food, gas, and housing. Printing money and raising prices to fix the problem are reducing the real value of wages and salaries. I know firsthand the importance of protecting your hard-earned savings from economic uncertainty and inflation. That's why I trust Birch Gold to help me invest in precious metals for my retirement. Gold can help diversify your investment portfolio by providing a hedge against market volatility and economic uncertainty. The stock market can be unstable. The value of your investments can fluctuate significantly from day to day or even within the same day. Precious metals will always have inherent value. Gold is a, a tangible and finite resource uncontrolled by any single government or financial institution. Unlike paper currency, the government can't just print gold whenever it's convenient. Uh, Birch Gold can help you convert your existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in physical precious metals. Text Walsh to 989898 to get a free info kit on gold today. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, Birch Gold is the company I trust to protect my future and yours. So text Walsh to 989898 today. So we'll start here. Uh, unfortunately, this story was just breaking as I went to film, so there isn't a lot of information at this point. But here's what we know uh, at this point from the Daily Mail. It says five people have died and at least six others have been wounded, including at least one police officer in a shooting outside the old National Bank in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. It's believed the death toll includes the shooter who apparently did not steal from the bank. Um, so that wasn't the motive behind the shooting, apparently, in the area of the 300 block of East Main Street in downtown in the downtown area of the city, located just hours from Nashville, where a gunman recently opened fire at a Christian school and killed six people. Um, dispatchers heard on the police scanners have, uh, dis have, heard, have, have indicated that the shooting occurred on the first floor of the building, which is in front of uh, Louisville Slugger Stadium. Metro police have said that they neutralized the gunman at the bank where terrified workers tried to shelter inside a vault. Authorities say there is no longer a threat to the public, but are continuing to urge people to avoid the area. So uh, they're saying five, five people have died, so 11 casualties include wounded, including a police officer. Here's what the police had to say um, just after the shooting at a press conference. Watch They've received a report of shots fired and a possible active shooter at 333 East Main Street at the old National Bank. Shortly after, officers arrived on scene with Louisville Metro Fire and EMS, where they encountered active gunshots still being fired inside the, the location at that time. The shooter was uh, confirmed to be dead on the scene. We do not know exactly the circumstances of his death at this time. Five people have been confirmed to have been killed inside. At least six were transported to University of Louisville Hospital, including one officer with various injuries. We are unable to confirm the status of those who have been transported at this time. I will reiterate that this is an ongoing investigation. This information is preliminary and it will be updated shortly. We ask that the public remain away from the scene. It will be an ongoing scene that will take a long time to investigate. 
but there is no active danger known to the public at this time. Uh, if anyone has any information related to this incident, we ask that you call 574-LMPD. We will have an, another update press conference at 11.30 where we'll be able to answer more questions and put out more information. As of now, that is all the So, uh, not much else is known about the shooting, so we have to wait for more details. I did just see this from uh, the latest from CNN, and they're saying four killed in mass shooting. That's the number that they have, but they are also saying that it was a former employee. So, we've already been told that, um, which leads you to believe disgruntled employee kind of situation, although we still... We still don't know. Um, what we do know, it seems at this point, is that uh, this is uh, another example of the police once again running towards the gunfire. Uh, this time, one of them, at least one, was uh, was shot in the process, went to the hospital. We don't know the status of any of the people that are in the hospital. Um, and that's another reason why we just we can't forget about the people who wanted to defund the police, wanted to make cops into the villains and pariahs in society are, are still working on all of those, on all of those uh, goals. Um, who exactly is running in to stop a mass shooting at a bank? Like who, who's going to do that in society? If you think we can get rid of the police, the police, or completely demonize and villainize them, you know, to the point where nobody wants to be a cop anymore. Well, who, who's, who, who are we relying on in that situation? I mean, what, what's, what social worker is going to run into that? So that's something we just cannot forget about. The people who called for defunding the police actually went forward with it in some cases, which is an absolutely suicidal policy, as we see yet again here. Um, this is from Reuters. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris flew to Nashville on Friday in a show of support for Tennessee state lawmakers expelled for staging a rule-breaking demonstration, otherwise known as an insurrection, for gun control on the state house floor after a recent school shooting. The so-called uh, Tennessee Three, as the media has dubbed them. And Kamala Harris decided that she was going to uh, fly out. And she came here to Nashville to do a little photo op with the, uh, the quote-unquote Tennessee Three. Also, Biden has invited them to the White House. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But here is Kamala Harris in Tennessee um, speaking out in her very eloquent way. It wasn't about the three of these leaders, it was about who they were representing. It's about whose voices they were channeling. Understand that, and is that not what a democracy allows? A democracy says you don't silence the people, you do not stifle the people, you don't turn off their microphones when they are speaking about the importance Okay. I don't know exactly what she said. I had to pull my uh, earphone out. Just that, that shrill voice. I can't, especially going directly into my eardrum that way. I can't handle it. Uh, but it did look like she was speaking to um, a, a cheering crowd there. She doesn't get that very often. So just, she's very excited about that. And there is the, uh, from what I could discern, the claim again about this is uh, what silencing democracy. No, this, this is actually exactly how democracy is supposed to work. Because again, uh, according to according to our state constitution, legislators have the authority and I would say responsibility to expel um, representatives 
who engage in this kind of disruptive behavior, which is exactly what, you know, and that's, and that is really underselling what they did to call it merely disruptive is quite an understatement because what they actually did was, was lead a screaming mob into the Capitol building. And then they pulled out bullhorns on the floor of the house, which is not something that you're allowed to do. And if you do that, um, you know, you, you have now made yourself, according to the state constitution, you have made yourself eligible for expulsion. The only thing wrong with what happened to the Tennessee three is that it was only the Tennessee two who got expelled. They all, all three of them should have been expelled. And it's only because of one, by the way, it's only because of one Republican lawmaker that the third one wasn't kicked out as well, Gloria Johnson. So if you want to have any complaints, it's that all three of them weren't kicked out. But certainly the two that were kicked out deserved it. And that's, uh, that is, that's how our system works. You know, we have a state constitution. Our lawmakers abided by it. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. But more to the point here, uh, it just shows you how evil these people are. I mean, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, the Democrats in general. That, what was it, a day after, a day after these uh, two ridiculous showboating phonies were kicked out of Congress, which was like, they had no interest in being lawmakers in the first place. I mean, we saw the speech from the one guy, I think it was Pearson, last week and doing his uh, best Martin Luther King Jr. impersonation, comparing himself to Jesus Christ. This is not somebody who wants to be a lawmaker. He wants cameras. He wants the cameras focused on him. Okay. He wants to work on cable news somewhere and, and, and he'll do that now. Okay. He'll, he'll have a, if he has not already signed a contract with MSNBC or CNN, if that hasn't already happened, it'll happen within a week guaranteed. So he got exactly what he wanted out of it, really in many ways. Nothing to complain about. But a day later, Kamala Harris on a plane showing up in Tennessee to meet with these poor, uh, put upon, persecuted lawmakers, ex-lawmakers now. And yet, it's been two weeks since um, a trans terrorist, you know, massacred children at a Christian school. No visit from Kamala Harris. No visit from Joe Biden. And, And to add insult to injury, not only was there no visit, but then she came here for something else, and she didn't stop and meet with the families. She didn't even stop and, you know, go to visit outside the school where there are flowers and candles set up. She didn't do anything like that. Completely ignores the families of this uh, mass shooting, and then comes here anyway, and is like right down the street from them, and makes no attempt to meet them. And then Biden, who also has not visited and won't, uh, he doesn't invite the families to the White House. He also doesn't invite the the hero police officers who ran in there and uh, took the trans terrorist out. Didn't invite them to the White House. Now, none of this is shocking. It's exactly what you'd expect. We know that these people are evil scum, really. The only thing that's notable about it is just how how little they're doing to hide it anymore. They're, they're not even trying to hide it. You know, I, I think that uh, maybe I'm naive, but I think if, if something like this had happened, uh, I don't know, 
let's say, 13 years ago, if it happened during uh, Obama's first term, and you had a, a similar thing happen at a Christian school, I think that they would at least pretend to care. Now, the Democrats of 2010 wouldn't have cared any more than they do in the year 2023, but they, they would have at least felt like they had to do something to pretend. And maybe they would have sent somebody from the administration to one of the vigils or to a funeral or, you know, they would have met with the police. They would have done something, at least putting on a front. And now at this point, they're not putting on a front. They don't care anymore. They're, they're, they, in fact, it's more than that. They want us. So when, when, when we notice that they're treating these families like dirt and they're acting like they don't care, they, well, they want us to notice that. So they might, if they heard everything I'm saying right now, they would say, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right, smart guy. It's like now you're, now, you're, now you're catching on. That's exactly the point. We want you to know that you are dirt, that we don't care about you. And if you're a Christian family and, uh, you know, you send your kids to a Christian school or you work at a Christian school, you know, and you're shot and killed, your, your, your children are shot and killed, they don't, they don't, they want us to know that they don't care. It's not like, you know, it's, it's not like these people are totally oblivious. I know that with Kamala Harris, sometimes it may seem like that, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that, that well, she's just an idiot. And, 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 and she is, certainly. I mean, this is not a high IQ person by any means, uh, probably not even triple-digit IQ. But at the same time, these are politicians. And so there was definitely a conversation, guaranteed there was a conversation at the White House when before Kamala, Kamala Harris went to, uh, to Nashville, there was absolutely a conversation about the fact that, well, you know, the families of the, the people murdered at Covenant are there. Now, are you going to visit with them? If you don't visit with them, it's going to look. There was that conversation, and the decision was made, no, we're not going to do it. You know, let, let people know. To, yeah, yeah, it sends a message. We're glad it sends that message. That's where we are now. All right, Daily Wire uh, has this report. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signaled Saturday that he was working to get Daniel Perry a pardon after he was convicted in a case involving self-defense. Perry, who shot and killed a man who was carrying an AK-47 at a Black Lives Matter protest in 2020, was found guilty of murder by a jury on Friday in Texas. The, uh, the jury found Perry not guilty of the ex- aggravated assault charge. Perry was not initially charged with any crimes after the incident, but in 2021, District Attorney uh, Jose Garza took, took office and decided to prosecute Perry. Garza is one of many district attorneys whose campaign was backed by billionaire Democrat mega-donor George Soros. That's a very important aspect of this case, just to emphasize that when this first happened and for a year afterwards, there was n- no effort to prosecute Daniel Perry. The police who looked into it, obviously they're going to investigate. Anytime somebody is shot and killed, there's going to be an investigation. They're going to question the person, people involved, obviously. And they did all of that, and they arrived at the conclusion that they're not going to prosecute it because no crime was committed. And then the Soros Goblin DA gets in there and uh, decides, hey, we're going to, we're going to circle back and uh, go after him. Um, Abbott said in a statement, quote, Texas has one of the strongest stand-your-ground laws of self-defense that cannot be nullified by a jury or a progressive district attorney. Unlike the president or some other states, the Texas Constitution limits the governor's pardon authority to only act on a recommendation by the Board of Pardons and Parole and Paroles. Um, Texas law does allow the governor to request the Board of Pardons and Paroles to determine if a person should be granted a pardon. I have made that request and instructed the board to expedite its review. 
I look forward to approving the board's pardon recommendation as soon as it hits my desk. Additionally, I've already prioritized reining in rogue district attorneys and the Texas legislature is working on laws to achieve that goal. Abbott's decision to go after the rogue district attorneys comes after uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sent law enforcement officials to remove a woke Soros prosecutor from, from power in the state. The only time that a Soros prosecutor has actually been removed uh, from power by a governor. David Fugit, who's the, uh, the lead investigating detective in the case, said in a 2021 affidavit that Garza acted with criminal behavior in the case. Now, Garza, again, is district, district attorney being accused by a lead investigator of acting with criminal behavior in this case. Um, quote, I had several conversations with the district attorney's office regarding the presentation of exculpatory evidence related to Daniel Perry. It became clear to me that the district attorney's office did not want to present evidence to the grand jury that would, that would be exculpatory uh, to Daniel Perry. On more than one occasion, I was directed by the Travis County Attor uh, Attorney's Office to remove exculpatory information that I intended to present to the grand jury during my testimony. Of my original 158 slide PowerPoint presentation, the presentation was reduced to 56 slides with almost all of the exculpatory evidence ordered removed. So that's 100 slides, 100 bits of evidence. Um, that would potentially exculpate Daniel Perry that the district attorney decided to remove and hide, which indeed is, uh, is criminal behavior. And I hope that after Daniel Perry is pardoned, if the pardon goes through, that you know he goes after the district attorney for malicious prosecution because that's exactly what this was. So this is, this is uh, I mean, it starts with terrible news that Daniel Perry, who, who absolutely acted in self-defense, okay, is in a car, his car swarmed by a mob, uh, somebody points an AK-47 at him. I mean, you don't have to wait. Like, obviously, you don't have to wait until a, a shot is fired in your direction before you act. Because by that, at that point, it is, it's too late. So if that becomes the standard, if the standard for self-defense is that you have to wait, someone's pointing a gun at you, you're being swarmed by a mob, whatever it is, but you have to wait until they fire the first shot. If that's the standard for self-defense, then that's just another way of saying that self-defense is criminal, that you're not allowed to do it because you're not going to get a chance, more than likely, especially if someone's pointing an AK-47 at you. So that's the horrible news. The good news is that Abbott is looking to pardon. And, um, you know, this is this continues a streak of, you know, impressive decisions and behavior from elected Republicans, maybe not on the national level. But we just saw in just Tennessee last week, Tennessee Republicans decided no, they had enough of this. Uh, they were not going to allow Democrats to use the floor of the House as a staging ground for a political demonstration because that's not what it's supposed to be. They kicked them out. And then just a couple days later, Greg Abbott responding to this conviction hours later by saying, I will pardon him if we get the recommendation from the board. I think that... Um, you know, not to take credit away from Republicans in Tennessee or Republicans and the, the governor of Texas or, you know, what we see what's, what's happening down in Florida. Not to take credit away from them because they have to be the ones to make these decisions. But they are also responding. Like, their response, this is, this is a reflection of conservatives demanding this. It's like, we don't want to see, we, we've, we've, we've heard a lot of talk for decades from you people. Uh, we, we're not interested in that anymore. We know that you can go on Fox News and you can sit there and you can say all the talking points that maybe that you know might be enough for some people, but for most of us, it's not. We need you to actually take action. 
And we're starting to see that from Republicans, at least in certain states. And that's good. But again, the fact that he was convicted in the first place um, is a, a very troubling sign, to say the least. And this is only a week or two weeks after the DA in Manhattan pressed charges against a, a parking garage security guard uh, for shooting someone in self-defense after being shot in the stomach. So you know, I just said a second ago that, well, if the standard is that you have to wait for someone to shoot at you before you're allowed to respond with, with, with lethal force. Um, actually, in, in Manhattan, they want to make the standard even tougher than that. Because in that case, the, the security guard was actually shot in the stomach. And then he responded by shooting the guy. And they still press charges. Now, we know that in that case, they dropped the charges because of the intense backlash that the DA was getting. And also, I think because, you know, he, he, he has this case against Trump that he's trying to prosecute. And he's a lot more concerned about that. I mean, that's the only thing he really cares about. And so he didn't want, to, he didn't want any scrutiny that would jeopardize that. And that's what ultimately saved the security guards, you know, uh, saved him in, in that case. But they wanted to prosecute him for that. In, uh, in Texas, they want to put this guy in prison for what is a clear-cut case of self-defense. And we know that the goal is to demoralize us as citizens. It's to make us hesitate to, to defend ourselves, um, make us vulnerable, make us helpless. Because, you know, they know ultimately that, um, yeah, they want to take all the guns. They want to confiscate our guns. They want to, uh, they want to overturn the Second Amendment, essentially. They'd let, if they could repeal the Second Amendment, they would. And, yeah, they want to do that. But they know that they can't. They're not, they're not going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to do even half of what they want to do when it comes to, uh, to gun control or even close to half. Because, because gun rights, that's like the one area where conservatives have all have drawn a hard line and they did that and that's been the case for decades now unwavering you know unwilling to compromise at all this is maybe the one area where that's the way conservatives you know conservatives in the mainstream have have handled it um so they know that uh that they're just they're not going to be able to do even a fraction of what they want to do so now they're thinking, well, can we do an end run? That's what it's going to be. We can't get rid of the Second Amendment. Can we do an end run around it? And one way to do an end run around the Second Amendment is to say, well, sure, you can have your, you can have your gun, you know, and you can have your right to self-defense. However, if you ever exercise that right, then we're going to destroy your life. So yeah, you have that gun, but just so you know, if you're ever in a position where someone wants to harm you, it's lose-lose. Because if you don't do anything, you'll be killed. If you do something, you're going to go to prison. We're going to ruin your life. That's the goal here. If they can't take the guns away, they can, uh, in their minds anyway, neutralize the fact that people have guns by making them too terrified to use them when the situation calls for it. All right, so this is a video being passed around of the uh, the new mayor of Chicago, Brandon Johnson. I think this is a video. This is, this is a little bit of an older video. Uh, it's not. At, it's from before he was actually elected. But um, in the video, he's, he's a former teacher, so he's, he's talking about his position um, against homework and failing grades. So he's, he is opposed to homework. He doesn't think that kids should get failing grades in school. Here he is explaining that. It taught me, though, was pushing 
like to eliminate sort of the standardization of our public schools. Um, my students sometimes would get frustrated. I didn't offer any test prep. Many of my other colleagues were doing it at the time. I was pushing our administration to move away from that. To be quite frank with you, I didn't issue a lot of homework for students. Um, that was my own way of sort of rebelling against the structure. Um, I, I don't think I ever gave a kid an F. I just, I, I, don't, I don't know how a student sits in front of you and fails. I know some professors may find that, you know, you know, it's slightly troubling. You know, so this is, uh, this is being shared mainly from what I can see by, by people on the right uh, on social media. And another example of crazy, you know, another crazy lefty doesn't want failing grades in school, doesn't want homework. Um, I actually agree. The thing is, I agree with him partially on this, but, but for wildly different reasons. So if you were to continue listening to that, you can almost guarantee that before or after that, or both, uh, he, he's going to make a case that, uh, that you know, th th there's inequity in the schools and it's a lot of it is racial. You know, it always comes back down to race. And so uh, that's part of the reason why he didn't assign homework. Like it's going gonna, it's gonna to become a racial thing. It's going to all uh, fit into their narrative of, of systemic oppression against so-called marginalized people and all the rest of it. I don't agree with that part of it. But the first part I do, you know, for example, homework, uh, I, I think that there's a very good argument to be made that schools really shouldn't be assigning homework. Um, because, it, and it's, it's one of those things that it only, you know, you hear that and instinctively, especially if you're conservative, you react against it because it sounds, you know, it's, it's, it's not what we're used to. You know, we're used to, all of us went to school, we all got homework. And so it sounds like if you're saying, well, we shouldn't give homeworks to kids, that this is all this is more coddling of the younger generation and we don't want to make them work hard. And again, that might be, for people on the left when they make this argument, that might be what motivates them. But there is a good argument to be made for getting rid of homework, uh, kind of the absurdity of the concept of homework. And the, and the good argument is that um, you're, you know, if we're talking about public school, you're sending your kids to this school building for six to seven hours a day or longer and they're there for five days a week, and you got them for nine, you know, eight to nine months of the year, if not more. Uh, you should be able to do. You should be able to to educate them, and do all of your teaching within the parameters, within those parameters. That's a lot of time. Okay, it's hundreds and hundreds of hours that you have available to you, and you should be able to. So if you if you find yourself as a teacher needing to assign homework. All that tells me is that you're wasted. There's a lot of time being wasted in class. Because it's actually not. Now, if the kids are at school for six to seven hours a day and they're, and they're actually being taught for six to seven hours a day and that time is being utilized and they're being educated, then to have additional work to do at home, that, that is, in fact, too much. Okay, you don't want a kid, like a nine-year-old kid, shouldn't be working on schoolwork for 10 hours a day. It's too much. It's overload. And you got to have kids, you got to give kids some time and space to actually be kids and play and all that. Um, so either it's work overload, but I don't think it's really that. I think it's that so much time is wasted in school. You're not properly utilizing the time. I remember this from when I, when I went to school. It, it always would, you know, of course I was biased. I didn't want to do my homework. And very often I just wouldn't do it anyway, which is why I got terrible grades. But, um, I can remember noticing this even when I was a kid, that it would be very interesting that we would, uh, 
you know, say we, we'd go to Spanish class and we'd sit there and we'd spend three days watching a movie. There's that movie, uh, Selena with uh, Jennifer Lopez that came out in the late nineties. And we watched that in my Spanish class in seventh grade, like I think three times in a year. And so we'd sit there, and it, but this is, you know, you break it up into 45 minute chunks. It's really like three days of classes taken up by watching Jennifer Lopez, Jennifer Lopez movie. And then after watching the movie, the teacher would say, okay, well, here's your homework for today. Well, this is all work we could have been doing now instead of watching the movie. So you're wasting all this time. And the other thing too is that when, when kids go home, they should be home with their parents. They should be with their families. That is also important. So what the schools try to do, I think this is part of this is part of the strategy. They waste a lot of time in school, waste tons of, I mean, hours a day. If the kids are there for six hours a day, very often three and a half to four hours is a total waste. Busy work, nonsense, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, but they take up their time with busy work during the day, and then they send them home, and they're still claiming a hold on those kids. The teachers are saying, well, here's all the stuff we need you to do while you're at home. Well, how much time is there for the kids to actually be with their families and be at home? No, the message to the school system should be, this is your time. This is the time we're giving you with our kids. It's a lot of time, okay? Six hours in a day to teach a, a, a child the subjects that they need to learn. That's a lot of time. And you should be able to make use of that time. When they come home, they're with, they're with us now. That's family time. And you don't get to claim ownership of that time, too. So, Brandon Johnson, actually right. Almost right, but for the wrong reasons, as usual. Let's get to the comment section. Let me tell you something. The days when skincare was just for women are over. If you're tired of dealing with puffy eye bags, dry skin, and wrinkles, and want to look and feel your best every day, it's time to start taking your skincare routine seriously. By establishing a consistent skincare routine, you can improve the health and appearance of your skin in countless ways. This is why you need to check out our friends at Genucel Skincare. Mark Herman used to be the director of my show back in the day, but I requested he be taken off my show because his face disgusted me. Now he's Candace's director, but try to get back in my good graces. He's been using Genucel's Ultra Retinol to try to make his face less visibly upsetting to me, and he's almost there. There are some things on a face you can't fix, but Genucel can do quite a bit. Genucel's Ultra Retinol is effective in treating acne by unclogging pores, reducing inflammation, and regulating the production of oil. You can say goodbye to fine lines, wrinkles, and even those annoying under-eye bags. Genucel will have you look at 5, 10, even 15 years younger, just in time for warmer weather. Best of all, Genucel guarantees results in as little as 12 hours or your money back. While Mark's face doesn't repulse me anymore, at least not as much, what's done is done. If you really care about someone, you'll make sure they're not d- disgusting when you look at them. So don't be like Mark. Visit Genucel.com Walsh to save over 70% off their most popular package, which includes the ultra retinol and dark spot treatment before it's too late. Every uh, subscription box includes a luxury gift box with two free springtime essentials just in time for warmer weather and free shipping. So go to genucel.com slash Walsh, genucel.com slash Walsh. Before we get to these comments, uh, I need to tell you about something. It's the tragic conclusion to a saga that has unfolded over many months. And um, I've been putting off, this actually happened a few days ago, I've been putting off telling you uh, And I don't know how else to say it other than Johnny the Walrus is no more. He has passed away. He has gone to live 
in the big Arctic Ocean in the sky. Um, he has been destroyed by my own hand, uh, I must say. So here's what happened. As you know, if you've been following this very important story, the most important, most important thing happening in the country for months now, really, um, I finally succeeded in taking possession of the giant life-sized walrus that was rightfully mine. I brought it home in December, and uh, I think it was, and, and this giant stuffed walrus sat in our living room. It sat there for a couple of months because there was nowhere else to put it, and because uh, it's so big. And my wife strenuously objected to having a giant stuffed walrus right in our living room. And um, she said, you know, crazy things like, it's embarrassing when we have guests over, takes up too much space, you know, the joke isn't funny anymore. Like, she kept saying all these things. And, um, and they were all absurd arguments, I thought. But finally, I compromised. And I said, uh, I said, I met her halfway. And so I moved the walrus to our son's bedroom. And it was really hard getting in there. I had to, like, roll this big thing down the hallway. I was knocking over picture frames and tables and everything. Everything was falling apart. And I got it in the room because I was trying to save Johnny's life. I didn't trust my wife around him anymore. And because um, and, she had repeatedly threatened harm against him. And so I, I, uh, I moved him because of, because of the threat of domestic violence against my stuffed walrus. But there were more problems because now this huge walrus was taking up my son's room and uh, two of our boys share a room and it was taking up the room. They couldn't access the, their closet because the, the walrus is in the way. And we couldn't put a dresser in there because there's no room because of the walrus. And so then their stuff was getting thrown all over the floor. And, uh, and she had a problem with that. And it just became, it, it, you know, it became a source. We would, my wife and I would have a disagreement about something unrelated to the walrus and would always go back to the walrus. You know, I would make a good point. She would say, oh yeah, well, you're the one who brought this walrus home. And it just became this thing. Civil war was threatening to break out in my family. It was tearing us apart at the seams. Johnny the Walrus, who had only ever given us love and affection, okay, and frankly, a lot of money in book royalties, that sweet, innocent walrus had become a burden on the family. And uh, I was left with no choice. So on Sunday, I did what I had to do. I had, I had to take, I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get him out of the house in one piece. So I had to cut him into pieces to dispose of him. I had to rip out the stuffing cut off his flippers. I was just about to cut off his head with scissors. And then my three-year-old daughter comes in and, uh, and you know, bursts into tears and she says, what are you doing? I said, well, I have to cut Johnny the Walrus's head off, sweetie. And then my other daughter is there and she said, you didn't have to put it that way, dad. It's a little bit harsh. So I had to buy off my daughter by buying her a different but smaller stuffed animal so she'd be okay. Now she's okay with that. And my, my kids were all like harvesting pieces of Johnny the Walrus. You know, my son wanted his head. One of my kids wanted a flipper. It was a very grim scene. And, uh, but it was what needed to do. And now he lays in ruins in my garage until trash day. And that's it. That, I tried, okay? I gave it. I, I fought for this thing. I fought as long as I could. But sometimes a tactical retreat is your only option. It's not a loss. I mean, it is, but uh, this is what we're left with. I brought him out to the garbage, and I wept bitterly. Not outwardly, not outwardly, but deep in my soul, I wept. And I'm still weeping. Uh, Jessica Harling says, the ADHD thing is why I begged my husband to let me homeschool our oldest when he was old enough for kindergarten. I had worked as a preschool teacher and after school, uh, an after-school caregiver for years. I was my son's preschool teacher, and I knew from my experience with other kids that the public school would push, push us to get them diagnosed and drugged. I'd seen it so many times, these little normal kids, mostly boys, zombified by drugs. Thank God my husband disagreed. Now, 16 years later, we found a million reasons why it's so important to homeschool the kids. ADHD was just one of many bullets our family has dodged by homeschooling. 
Our kids are smart, articulate, well-adjusted, and talented. Let kids play, limit screens, teach them rich, important, and true things. No need for drugs. Yeah, well, it's, you, you made the right decision, and that's um, exactly right. And, you know, you're also, if, if a, it, it, it is always interesting, even though we heard that ADHD di- that the ADHD diagnosis is, is rising among all demographics, including among women, it still is more common among men and especially more common among, among boys in school. Um, which was always an interesting fact that never gave anyone pause. The people who believe in ADHD as an actual illness, they never really stopped to think like, well, okay, if this is simply a, a mental disorder that you're born with or something, however it works, uh, why is it that most of the time it's a, a, you know, a boy in a school environment who seems to be, have come down with this mental illness or just so happens he was born with it, however you think it happens? Well, it's because in large part, we're, we are diagnosing boyhood itself. These are just boys who are energetic. Uh, they, you know, they, they don't do well sitting still and, and doing busy work for hours at a time. Boys are not as good at memorization as girls are. So the school environment is tailored for girls, not for boys. And because the boys don't fit in, we drug them into submission. To try to fit that, you know, square peg into the round hole. Um, Allison says, I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD till I was 17. Taking medication really helped me to ease my anxiety and be able to function in school. It's a real mental illness, um, although it is being overly diagnosed. Well, and I, and I hear this a lot, Allison. This will just be representative of many of the other comments that made the same point from people saying, well, you say ADHD isn't real, but uh, I took medicine for it and I'm doing better now. Or, you know, we gave medicine to our son and now he's doing so much better in school. Look, the fact that you took a drug and it's helping with your performance, that might be a good thing. It might be a bad, you know, however you would judge that. But the fact that the drug helped you with your performance or helps you feel better, that in and of itself doesn't prove that there's a real underlying illness here. Okay, any more than, you know, if you are, um, if you play baseball and you decide to take steroids, that's going to help your performance, uh, on, you know, when you're playing baseball. It's going to make you a better baseball player. Does that prove that you had some sort of disorder, which made you an inferior baseball player? Is like being not as good at baseball, is that, does that now become a disorder? The fact that you can cure that affliction with a drug, does that make it now a disorder? No. Just It's performance enhancing. There are drugs that enhance your performance. There are drugs that are, you know, that are illicit or illicit that make you feel better, make you feel good, right? There's drugs that do that. Um, alcohol can do that. That doesn't in and of itself prove that it's curing some kind of disorder. And that's real, you know, that's actually what ADHD drugs are. These are, these are like performance, these are kind of educational performance enhancement drugs. It's kind of the, it's the, it's the academic equivalent of, of giving steroids to someone playing baseball or playing a sport. Um, and the fact that it works in that way, again, does not at all prove that, uh, that there's an actual underlying disorder here. Uh, and finally, Ed Brad says, to be fair, Matt, it's the intensity of the symptoms, not just the symptoms. It's how extreme they are. Well, yeah, I get it. I get that that's what they're diagnosing, right? I, I think I acknowledge that. 
that you look at the, the symptoms of ADHD and all of them, whether it's for kids or adults, all of them are going to be totally normal things. These are just, you know, the symptoms of ADHD in children. That's just, you're describing a child. That's how ch children are. The symptoms of ADHD in adulthood. Not able to focal, focus, disorganized. You have mood swings. All that kind of stuff. Like everybody goes through that. Everyone does. Um, and everyone acknowledges that. Which is why, and I acknowledge this when we were talking about it on Friday, um, the people who diagnose this, the doctors who diagnose this stuff, they'll say that, well, it's not, yeah, everyone might feel this way and everyone might have these, uh, you know, tendencies and character traits. But if it's, if it's to a certain level, if it's extreme, well, now it becomes a disorder. But what you haven't done still is explain who decides what qualifies as an extreme level for these different character traits, personality traits, behaviors. What, what's extreme? What does that mean? Where is that line crossed? Who judges that? And why should we trust them to judge it? And even if we could all agree, you know, uh, a kid not being able to pay attention, that's normal. If there's like an extreme level of not being able to pay attention, if we could agree, if we could all agree where that line is, that still doesn't prove that it's a disorder. All it does is prove that that's how this kid is. Maybe inconvenient, it may be difficult, doesn't make it an illness, though, on its own. Let's talk about something I don't usually talk about, unless I'm reading this copy, which I do a lot, in fact. Uh, hair. Not mine. My hair is handsome and brilliant because I use Jeremy's Razor Shampoo and Conditioner. I'm talking about yours, because if you're not also using Jeremy's Restorative Tea Tree and Argon Oil Blend to wash your mane, well, you're doing it wrong, and you're asking to be canceled and banned from the show Forever. Jeremy's Razors is more than a razor company. It's a men's grooming brand that doesn't hate men. Imagine that. Their shampoo and conditioner, along with their exfoliating charcoal body wash, are all made from high-quality natural ingredients right here in the USA. They're sulfate-free, and uh, even though I don't know what a paraben is, I know that they don't have that either. Most importantly, it's all woke-free. They don't have any wokeness in the product. I know that. So stop giving your money to woke companies who hate you. Head over to jeremysrazors.com. Check out their shampoo, conditioner, and body wash bundles today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today for our daily cancellation, we must officially cancel San Francisco State University. As you probably recall, on Friday we discussed the chaos that ensued at the school when uh, former NCAA swimmer Riley Gaines came to speak there. Gaines has been described by some media outlets as a conservative speaker, but as far as I'm aware, she's never announced her political views publicly. At least I don't think she has. She may, she may be conservative, she may not be. All we know is that she recognizes that men are men, women are women, and uh, she doesn't think men should compete against women in women's sports. If this is a right-wing belief these days, and I suppose by default it is, it's only because the left has entirely succumbed to madness. I mean, now if you recognize that the sky is blue and two plus two equals four, you're automatically a far-right conservative, which is a situation that, as an actual far-right conservative myself, I guess I'm okay with. Because if the left wants to give us exclusive ownership over uh, the most common sense and fact-based observations you can make, then I'll take it, I suppose. Anyway, Gaines spoke at uh, San Francisco State University on Thursday. It wasn't until after her talk that all hell really broke loose. A mob of enraged, frothing-at-the-mouth trans activists assaulted Gaines, chased her down the hallway, forced her, forced her to barricade herself in a room for her own safety. And uh, just to review again, if we didn't see this video on Friday, but here's what that looked and sounded like. Are you ready? 
We remember that scene. Um, as we saw on Friday, the, the mob stayed outside the room for a long period of time, refusing to let her leave. At one point, someone suggested forcing her to pay cash for the right to leave safely. This is otherwise known as kidnapping. Uh, the crime, that crime, kidnapping, can be added to the charges of assault, harassment, intimidation, or at least the, that crime would be added to the charges if there were any charges being filed, if either the university or local law enforcement cared to hold a rabid horde of trans activists accountable, but they don't. Instead, the next day, a woman named Jamila Moore, who's the vice president for student affairs and enrollment management at the school, she sent out an email, uh, which, which makes the mob into both the heroes and the victims of this story, of course. Here's what she said. Quote, dear SF State community, today, San Francisco State finds itself again at the center of a national discussion regarding freedom of speech and expression. Let me begin by saying clearly, the trans community is welcome and belongs at San Francisco State University. Further, our community fiercely believes in unity, connection, care, and compassion, and we value different ideas, even when they're not our own. SF State is regularly noted as one of the most diverse campuses in the United States. This is what makes us great, and this is what makes us, uh, this is what makes us gators, and this is what makes us great. Diversity promotes critical discussions, new understandings, and enriches the academic experience. But we may also find ourselves exposed to divergent views and even views we, we find personally abhorrent. These encounters have sometimes led to discord, anger, confrontation, and fear. We must meet this moment and unite with a shared value of learning. This is already a load of nonsense, of course. Diversity does not in and of itself promote critical discussions or new understandings, and neither does it enrich the academic experience. Uh, unless, of course, a, a swarm of leftist zombies chasing a woman down the hallway, like a scene from 28 Days Later, counts as enrichment, which in Jamila Moore's case, uh, or in her mind, it certainly does. It's also what she means by discussion and understanding. Specifically, she wants people like Riley Gaines to come to the understanding that her views are heretical and unwelcome, and her life has no value so long as she remains in her state of apostasy. Continuing with the email, it says, Thank you to our students who participated peacefully in Thursday evening's event. It took tremendous bravery to stand in a challenging space. I'm proud of the moments where we listened and asked insightful questions. I'm also proud of the moments when our students demonstrated the value of free speech and the right to protest peacefully. Yeah, that's chasing her down the hallway, screaming. That's not only protesting peacefully, but it's also demonstrating the value of free speech. We're to come and assault you. And, and try to rip you to shreds if you say something we don't like, because we value free speech. Sure. She continues, these issues do not go away, and these values are very much at our core. This feels difficult because it is difficult. As you reflect, process, and begin to heal, please remember that there are people, resources, and services available and ready to receive our Gator community, including faculty, staff members, coaches, and mentors who are here to support you. Campus resources are, are also available. Equity and community inclusion, counseling and psychological services, the dean of students' office. The well-being of the SF State campus community remains our priority. Now, it's hard to know where to begin. Um, once again, we see how the Words Are Violence crew doesn't believe that actual violence is violence. Or even that words are violence, depending on what the words are and who they're being said to. You'd think that if any words could be violence, if words could ever qualify as violence in and of themselves... It would be the words that are screamed at a young woman by a slobbering throng of lunatics as she tries to flee afraid for her life. 
Except in that case, words aren't violence, and actual physical assault isn't violence either. She also applauds the, uh, the, the mob for their bravery, because apparently it requires bravery to accost and harass a woman who you outnumber like 10 to 1. Or, I don't know, sorry, 100 to 1 maybe. And she offers counseling services to those who need to heal. Not for Riley Gaines, of course, who was barricaded in a room while a gang of trans militants stood outside negotiating for her surrender and demanding literal ransom payments. The school isn't worried about her trauma. Instead, they're concerned about the trauma inflicted on the mob itself. Which is ridiculous, of course, but it's not far, it's not as far from the mark as we might think. Because the people in that crowd, they do need intense psychological counseling, just not for the reasons that Jamila Moore would say. You know, these people, they, they, they love to talk about nuance. You know, we always hear about nuance. We, we need to have nuanced conversations to understand the, the nuanced situations in this very nuanced world we live in, they say. But there could not be, as we see time and time again and again here, there could not be a less nuanced worldview than this, than modern leftism, which is what you saw in that video. That's what it is. To them, it's all very simple, very black and white, both literally and figuratively. Because if, you're, if you are the enemy, and Riley Gaines qualifies as the enemy, then everything you do is wrong. Everything you say is wrong. And there is nothing anyone, anyone could ever do to you uh, or, or anything, anyone, anything anyone could say to you that would be unjustified or overboard in their mind. Enemies do not deserve to speak or to live in peace or to live at all. Their well-being is not taken into consideration unless we're considering how to destroy it, that is. It really is as simple as that. And San Francisco State University could not be clearer about it in their response to this incident. And this is how nearly every university would view this situation, by the way, which is something to keep in mind before enrolling in one of these places or sending your kids there. And it's also why San Francisco State University is today canceled. And that'll do it for the show today or for this part of the show anyways. we go over to the members block and become a member today by using code Walsh at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.